You're listening to Art Affairs, episode 76. Today I'll be talking to Camila DeRico. So my name is Michael Faith, and this is Art Affairs. Art Affairs is my attempt at shining a spotlight on the many wonderful people that make up this amazing art community, featuring conversations with artists, gallerists, curators, telling their stories. You can take through previous episodes, complete with show notes, at artaffairspodcast.com, but the best way to stay plugged in is to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're really enjoying the show and want to help support what I'm doing here in an even bigger way, check out the Art Affairs Patreon. Not only does it give you an opportunity to help keep the show going, but there are several community-oriented benefits as well, like getting early access to episodes and suggesting questions for upcoming guests. You can find all the information about that at patreon.com slash artaffairs. You can also connect with the show on Instagram at artaffairspodcast. All right, so today's guest is artist Camila DeRico. Camila is most well-known for her paintings of gorgeously colorful and vibrant feminine figures, often joined by animals. But her career has been incredibly diverse, and for the longest time, creating comics was her primary pursuit, and her true love. In our chat, we talk about how she first got into comics and ultimately started publishing her own series, how gallery art eventually overtook comics as the biggest part of her practice, her upcoming solo show at Corey Helford, and a whole lot more. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Camila DeRico. Camila, welcome to the show. It's so good to have you on. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. All right, awesome. So let's dive into your background a little bit. And and I know that you've spent a lot of your life in Vancouver, but I read that you grew up in a small country town. Um, But your your bio also refers to you as Italo-Canadian, so I wasn't 100% sure if that small country town was in Canada or if it was maybe in (laughs) Italy. It it doesn't actually say. So were were you born in Canada? (laughs) Yeah, I was born in Ottawa. Uh, I grew up there for until I was 12. And then my parents decided to move us from the capital of Canada to a tiny remote, uh, technically called a village of Lumbee in British Columbia on the opposite side of the country uh where we had like a beautiful piece of land but if there was nobody there like i was used to being in a cul-de-sac you know surrounded by kids and and family and friends and then my parents moved us to this very remote town but it was it was a complete change of uh pace for us and it was absolutely stunning I, I like we went to our elementary school. I remember showing up and behind like the backdrop of the elementary school was a, a mountain. Wow. And like I just I was blown away. I was um like as a kid I went I was so excited to be there, but then as a teen you're like, why am I in this tiny town? <laughs> <laughs> um but the one thing my parents were amazing at was that uh they were very strict like yeah, my parents are strict. They're Italian, you know, they're immigrants, they're strict. <laughs> but what they did was they created a, an environment of Italy inside the house. So as soon as you open the door, as soon as you close it, you're inside Italy. Like we spoke Italian, we wrote Italian, we communicated in Italian, um, and we ate everything Italians. I remember my mother making what she thought was French toast. Um, and my whole life, 
I thought that French toast was salty, you know, like, cause she's like, you know, you put it in bread and milk and then you fry it up and we're like, okay, great. Salt and pepper. Like that just makes sense to an Italian. And then I remember my, my, my girlfriends being like, why are you salting your, <laughs> your French toast? And I'm like, what are you talking about? They're like, put maple syrup on it. I'm like, blasphemy, you know, like, so there was just really interesting, um, like nuances growing up uh, with Italian immigrants um, as parents and then, you know, stepping outside and it's like Canada. It's, a, it's very different. The two cultures are very different. And from what I understand, food is a very serious thing. And oh, like, yeah. you're, you're oh, telling yeah. me that, that you're drinking a latte. They don't do that after 11 from when I like 11 is like the cutoff for cappuccinos oh. or anything with milk. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, yes. Yeah. My poor husband, who is a cafeaholic and we went to Italy and he was desperate for an Americano, like for like just a normal, he said, no, no, he was like a normal coffee and they're just like espresso. And he's like, no, no, like more. And I'm just like, oh God, honey, you're so, you're so embarrassed. Because you know, in Italy, you go, you get your, you stand to have your espresso. Like they don't really eat breakfast. They, they sit, they have a biscotti and then they have a, like an espresso and then they, they stand, they, they drink it. They basically take shots of espresso and then they're off and you only drink coffee at the end of a meal and like a little shot of espresso and then that's it. But yeah, they're, it's interesting. They're very strict about their food. <laughs> that's amazing. So, I mean, you mentioned the, the, the kind of beauty of the natural world around you. Is it something you mm -hmm. spent a lot of time in? Did you spend a lot of time in nature? Was you kind of Absolutely. immersed in that? Oh, yeah. My, my father and my mother were so great about that when we were growing up. They would find wild blueberry patches in Ottawa. Like they would take us cross country skiing. They would take us fishing and we would only catch these terrible like, sunfish, which I don't know if you've ever seen them. They're beautiful, but inedible. So, you know, um, but they would take us around and they were like, my father is a hunter. So he was, you know, they bought land and he, we, you know, he would have one deer a year. That was it. Like the one deer. And he would take us out into this beautiful, like, fields and and forests and yeah and so even when we moved to Lumbee which is all nature all the time it's just something that I, I it's a huge part of who I am because my parents were so like diligent about it and my mother is is one of those people who will literally not hurt a fly like she's like no you don't have to kill it like it's alive you shouldn't kill it just because it bothers you and yeah, she won't kill spiders. She's like, she's, she cries if, a, if a cat kills a bird, like she's just amazing about that. So yeah, they, they taught us a lot about how to forage and just how to respect nature, which I think is something that everybody should learn, you know? For and sure. yeah, it's a, it's, we live in this beautiful pearl of a, of a planet. We should learn about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And just recognize that we're all a part of the larger ecosystem. Um, what yes. kind of work did your parents do? Like, was there anything creative or artistic? Well, my, oh, well, no. Uh, but my mother is the one who had the artistic side, but my mother was a nurse. So my mother um, was, okay, again, that kind of, that brings back the whole caring and like, you know, the empathy for every living creature. Uh, but she was the, the artistic one. Yeah. Okay. Like I remember my mother helping me with school projects and she was drawing. I'll never forget this. It was probably grade four and I had to do this project and she's like, okay, let's, let's draw huskies, uh, like pulling a sled. And she basically drew it. And I'm like, Oh my God, it blew me away. You know? <laughs> and she, she drew a beta fish and I was like, Whoa, like it just, was unbelievable. Um, I really, I was amazing. That's awesome. So was that exposure to kind of her 
internal creativity that that got you interested in creating art or what other things may spark that creativity? Well, it's definitely part of my mother, like just drawing with me. And then uh, I grew up in the 80s. And of course, you know what that means, like cartoon mania. So like (laughs) we're talking about He-Man, She-Ra, like (laughs) like Care Bears, Rainbow Bright. So I was exposed to all these cartoons that were just um, colorful, psychedelic, I, beautiful. And I love that every time they had a lesson at the end, you know, do you remember like he and Sherry would watch the episode and at the very end, yeah. the, the one character would like be like, what did you learn today? And I'm like, this is great. So, <laughs> um, I just think, and then of course, Disney really blew up in the eighties and nineties with like the little mermaid and you had like Snow White and all this stuff. So, I remember just being exposed to that and it connected with me in a really visceral way that I think absolutely influenced what I wanted to do with my life. Very cool. And and, and from what I understand, you're also into comics and, and manga. Did you have yeah. like a favorite creator or favorite mangaka growing up? Oh, you know what? Growing up. So the thing is, there weren't any anime and manga didn't really hit the scene until like the 2000s and I'm the one thing that did happen was anime so we had like Sailor Moon and Astro Boy and you had like Tekken and that that changed my entire perspective so when I was um growing up I did read a lot of comics though so I was very big into Top Cow like um I love the Witchblade. Oh my gosh. I love the darkness. The darkness was like one of the most um, mind bending things for me because it was like a, an anti-hero that I'd never seen before because I was used to Superman and Batman. Like they're obviously good people, but then you have this mafia hitman that has the powers <laughs> of hell and he's the main character. I was like, what is happening? Like, so I was very uh, like Michael Turner was just one of the most be- amazing artists and beautiful people too. So uh, I was really uh, focused on that. And then, uh, and also Humberto Ramos brought a very interesting twist to, to Spider-Man that I'd never yeah. seen. It was like very cartoony, very anime-ish. Uh, so I was very, I was kind of drawing that style. And then that's when the anime hit, like the anime wave hit. Uh, and I remember I went ex- to... Comic-Con in 1998 with my little terrible portfolio. I'm oh, sorry. I went to Comic-Con with my terrible little portfolio with like Pikachu versus the darkness and stuff. <laughs> and, um, and I got, I got hired on. And then as I got hired by this, this company called Committed Comics, which still exists today, I actually like work with the editor, um, Tom Doherty. He was, he took a chance on me and I really thank him for that because I was able to work with other creators and then as I was doing that, that's when I took a, basically a sabbatical for six months to just reinvent my style and, and make it more anime because that was where my passion was. It, it, uh, it evolved as, as we grow up, as we change, as you know, I was like, okay, I don't really want to do the comic book thing anymore. I really want to look into the anime and manga style. So when it was in the 2000s, I was really big into, um, Oh, Hatsukoi Limited was one of those. I really, you know, very obscure things that I think people won't even know. (laughs) Maybe just because I'll date myself. But I think anybody can like, um, you, like Naruto is just one of those mangas that, uh, I think for me was 
amazing. And I cried so much reading that manga. Like there was so much tragedy in that. And I, <laughs> it, I think that's what hit, that's what I really loved about anime manga is that it, it strikes you on an emotional level. You know, it's not just about superpowers. It's about this character struggling and their journey and every issue they get better. And there's like a really complete story arc for them. So, and yeah, Naruto is always going to be one of my favorites. That early 2000s was like the the height of Adult Swim on Cartoon mm, Network. Yeah. I don't know if you ever watched that, but so I did. many. Good- <laughs> oh my God, of course. Of course I did. <laughs> so good. So were your parents supportive of this path for you as, as you know, kind of pursuing art as a profession? Well, you know, as any parent, uh, they were worried because I was doing what artists do, which is doing a lot of non-paid work. And they were always supportive. So I'll say this. They were always supportive of my artist, or my artistic skill and, and what I want to do. They were like, you want to be an animator? Let, you know, we'll pay for school. So I went, I did animation, but I was very bad at it. And I realized that I didn't like this, the tech, the technical side of it. I wanted to be more creative. Whereas like anime or sorry, animation is very like, draw, draw this a hundred times, but like slightly different. I'm like, that's just not for me. Uh, so I switched, you know, careers and my parents were like, well, what are you going to do now? And I'm like, well, I really, I think I really want to do comic books. So they were supportive. They're like, okay, we'll take you to Comic-Con, which they did. And, uh, my father like made me talk to every editor he could find. He's like, get in those portfolio lines. So they were really supportive. But then as the years went by, you know, I was still not being paid, even though I was doing all this work and they could see me like not struggling, but just trying my best. And they were, you know, they were worried, but then eventually like, I just, I was like, you know what, I'm going to do have a backup plan because yes, you're right. I'm not being paid. So I went to, that's when I moved to Vancouver and I went to Capilano college, which is now Capilano university to get a degree in, um, design. So illustration and design so that I could actually become an illustrator and do cover, you know, like um, make my way in that world. And uh, by the time that I actually graduated, that's when I was starting to get paid for comics because I still was doing comics (laughs) while I was in school. (laughs) I was like, I'm not giving up. It's like a dog with a bone. Um, Yeah. So my parents were very supportive, but they were worried. And now they're like ridiculously proud of me and just like so happy. Yeah. (laughs) That's so cool that your father was like, you know, pushing you around Comic-Con, you know, haven't you talked to all these people? (laughs) Oh my God, it was so embarrassing. I still remember Joshua Dysart was uh, one of my very first like uh, comic book friends. And he was, yeah, he was sitting there at his booth and my father is like, I found this guy, talked to him, he's a writer. (laughs) And I'm like, oh God. (laughs) And Joshua still remembers that interaction. Like we're still friends. We, We see each other every year at San Diego and I'm just like yep <laughs> oh my gosh my father so your your art school um you know going into Cap U uh, was a backup plan it sounds like it was like it if, was. hey if the comic stuff doesn't work out I at least have a you know something that could pay my bills yeah yeah and you know what? it ended up really helping my my style it helped me understand um, layouts and, and like where, where the eye focuses. And it was all stuff because there's no school for comic books, you know, right, like, right. and you can look at a comic, but sometimes if you don't have the, the language, you don't understand why one page works and like why one doesn't, you know, like, why does this comic book look so good? And then this one, I don't understand what's going on. So it, it actually helped round me out as an artist. And even though I'm not, 
uh, a designer, I still bring that influence with my branding, you know, into my, my now my, my paintings and all of that stuff. Like I learned a lot of techniques in, in school too, which helped me become a, a painter. And and you mentioned that uh, that first kind of experience creating comics with committed comics. I think that was yeah. back in like two thousand one, two thousand timeframe. Mm-hmm. Not long after that, you created your your first creator own manga series, Burn, I believe. With I did, yes. <laughs> QEW Publishing, and then later by Arcana Studios. Yeah. Um, so I guess what attracted you to that um, kind of creator own side of the the comic. I guess, scene, so to speak. Is that just what you enjoyed personally? And that's kind of what you gravitated towards? Well, I working for an independent, like Committed Comics, they were very uh, focused on, um, it, you know, creator-owned titles. So they wanted to create something that was new in the in the world of comics. And so when Tom was like, you know, do you, or I guess Tom didn't help me create Burn, but he was a strong influence in being like, okay, think about what you want to bring to the table. And at the time, there wasn't a lot of creator owned anime style. Like I wanted to be very manga, you know, um, black and white, you know, I didn't want it to be colored and it wasn't. Um, and that was, Burn was supposed to be my Naruto, you know, where you take this character, this young boy and you transform, you basically beat the hell out of him <laughs> and then rebuild him into a person. <laughs> um, and unfortunately I didn't get to continue the series. I got, uh, the first, like basically graphic novel, the first manga done. And then I wanted to continue, but at that time there were issues and I was like, okay, I have to, I'll move on. Um, but that was a really amazing experience and getting to work with a writer, Scott Sanders, who I still to this day am friends with. And I still like go see him and his family in Seattle. Um, it's just, you just form these bonds and you get to like, I think you also learn how to collaborate. Um, when you're working for somebody else's project, you're just like, okay, I'm going to do exactly what you want. But then when you're working on something that's yours, you learn how to express yourself, how to actually talk to somebody and get listened to them, which is very difficult for people. I think nowadays to take, you know, they're like, oh, you're criticizing me. It's like, actually, it's a critique. Um, I'm just, (laughs) you know, like, uh, I just want to give you what I think would work well. So that was a really amazing experience. And I'm very thankful to Scott for everything that he did on that book. Very cool. And then from there, you graduated to even self-publishing. So not just creating yeah. the story, but also publishing with Tan Popo, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, for, for listeners that may not have, have encountered that series before, um, it sort of reinterprets or reimagines classic literary tales. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I believe from, and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe the original intent for that re- release plan was to for it to be 10 chapters. Um, but I, I don't know if all 10 chapters come out. From what I could tell you, you went, got to three and then collected it. And then there was a volume two, but I think volume two is really six, seven, and eight um, of the chapters. So help me understand, is there still more to yeah. come <laughs> is what I'm getting oh, at. <laughs> uh, yes, this is the thing. I know Tampopo is my passion project. And of course, when it's a passion project, you're not getting paid. So the, yeah, so Tampopo, we originally, I originally released it as individual uh, chapters. And then um, I ended up working with Boom Studios who took on the, the publishing and they're like, well, why don't we just create it into hardcover graphic novels? So that's when seven, eight, nine were collected into the second hardcover edition of the series. And as I was working with, uh, on Tampopo three, which I still am working on. Oh my gosh. It's been years. Uh, you know, other things were popping up and I had to make some decisions. It's like, what do I work on? Things that, 
you know, because when you're creating your own graphic novel and I was doing everything, I was doing all the writing, I was doing all the, the drawing, all of the, the coloring, all the lettering, everything. It's a massive amount of work. And even though like my sister Adapia was helping with the writing, like she would help, you know, well, why don't we do this with the story? And I'm like, okay, yeah, we could try that. But like, it's a lot of work to, um, read through, mm, like so much literature, you know, there, I, I went through Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I went through like Faust, the, the, the Iliad, which is a, it's, it's a big huge. read. Yeah. It's a huge read. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, and sometimes I'll read these, these masterpieces and I'm like, okay, it actually doesn't fit what I want. And yeah, so that particular series is a absolute passion project. I love literature and it was inspired by this, um, this, portrayal of Faust that I saw in Vancouver at the Queen Elizabeth Theater where the character like the characters were all dressed in uh period pieces but the sets were done in a modern twisted way you know and I'm just like it for me that was a, a huge inspiration because I thought well you can actually take something classic and then reimagine it without betraying the source material and so that's what I wanted to do with uh, Tam Popo. And I do want to release, I, so it is, I do have two more graphic novels okay. that I, <laughs> I, I want to release. And, um, you know, I was telling my husband, I literally was just saying how I'm going to slow down so that I have more time for these projects because I, I do have also like Helmet Girls is another graphic novel that I want to release. And, you know, you just find yourself life kind of like sweeps you up and takes you off in these different directions. Like I didn't intend to be a painter right. and yet that takes up most of my time now. So, so what was that? I mean, self-publishing is like a whole other level than just creating the story or, yeah. or doing the art. How did you learn to even do that? I mean, just how to go about publishing your own comic, especially when it was just you before boom stepped in, how did you learn those yeah. things? Well, uh, I did take a lot of help from my sister who she's like, okay, we're going to, we're going to find some printers. Um, I was in touch with a, a local printer in Vancouver who, um, who did do some of the, the initial, the very, very first Tampopos, which were so expensive because <laughs> like when you're, if you're not printing like a thousand of these things, like they cost so much. And I think a lot of times consumers don't understand the costs involved with small runs or with self-publishing. So that's why when you, when you, you know, support somebody doing their, their self-published, it's like the price tag is, is three times as much as a regular comic. Cause, but you don't understand that that's what is necessary. Cause you can't order 5,000. Where are you going to put those sleep on them? Like, <laughs> you know, I don't have distribution. I don't know. So, but my sister did help me a lot uh, with the self-publishing and we ended up finding a really great uh, printer and, and yeah, we were, I was able to produce a, a very, very beautiful little booklet that had like a soft, like so soft, silky cover, which is like the, everything for me. Nice. <laughs> and so with all of these projects going on, how did you ultimately have time to explore your painting craft and kind of get into painting and make an entrance into that side of your art craft? Yeah, that's a complete, that's a very, Good question, because I was so hyper-focused on comics. Like, that was it. That was it for me. And so what happened was, while I was in school at CapU, uh, during lunch breaks, like, by the way, I'm going to preface this with, I'm, I was very antisocial. Like, I had no friends. I had no friends. Uh, no boyfriends or anything of the sort. I was like, 
I'll have a social life when I'm, when I'm, when I've made it. So during my lunch hours, I would work on other projects and these were paid projects. So I would do cover work. I would do, I was working on burn at the time. And then I was also working on for uh, like a series of snowboards. And uh, so then I had all this snowboard art, you know, I had, I had drawn these ninja girls and they sent me snowboards, like physical snowboards. And I lived in a 400 square foot apartment. They sent me eight of these things. And I'm like, oh my <laughs> God, what do I do with these? So I went to a mall in Vancouver and I happened to see there was a gallery and I'm like, oh my gosh, they're the Aiden gallery. What's this? And inside was a plethora of incredible art. It was like my style. It was just like the first time I'd ever seen art displayed in a, in, in a gallery setting. Cause I was used to like the Vancouver art gallery where it's like, you know, modern art, you know, there's like obviously Picasso's all those beautiful paintings. And so this for me was like an interesting experience to see this kind of cartoonish pop surrealist art. And I tried to offload my, uh, my snowboards. I was like, Hey, I've got some snowboards. You want to sell them during your snowboard show? He's like, no. <laughs> like, <laughs> He's like, I'm like, damn it. Um, he's like, but what do you, what did you do with the originals? And I'm like, you mean the drawings? He's like, yeah. I'm like, well, I don't know. They're in like, he's like, I'm like, you want to sell those? And so it comes from a very interesting perspective as a comic book artist. For me, the original art meant was meaningless. You know, it was the, it was the finished product that actually had value. It was like, that was what you're supposed to be proud of. You're like, look, I got it published. Like, this is it. Like it's, you know, there's staples, it's done. And uh, so I didn't even give any of my original art, like a second thought. And so when this gallery, you know, Ken Lum at the Aiden was like, I would love to like, let's frame it and let's sell it. And so they did, they sold the, the drawings sold before the opening to a man from Los Angeles who saw my potential and between Ken Lum and, um, you know, David from Los Angeles, uh, I was doing shows at with, with Ken. And then I was also being introduced into the world of pop realism in LA. And so David was introducing me to these galleries and I started transferring my art from paper to canvas, uh, which is something that I was never really encouraged to do in school. You know, like I've, I've had teachers that were very positive, but then I also had negative experiences where they're like, yeah, you're not really good at painting. And I'm like, well, screw it. I'm not even going to be a painter. It doesn't matter. I'm going to be a, I'm a comic book artist and I'll show you all. And then Ken was like, you should put, you should paint on, you know, on canvas. And I'm like, all right, okay, I'm going to give it a shot. And I did. And, and I felt such a different experience doing that. Like as an artist, I got to focus on one image that told a story without words. And that is such a unique thing to do. Um, because you don't, you, you, people really can't tell what you're doing. You have, they have to interpret what you're doing. And I loved, I really loved that. And so I kind of fell in love with painting. And then my sister became involved um, after that, after I started becoming, I, after I basically just couldn't handle everything on my own. And she was taking over like the business side of it and everything. And just, I, we ended up um, going solo uh, in, in Los Angeles and uh, developing relationships, long-term relationships with galleries. And I just, yeah, it's kind of like my world now where I'm, I'm painting all these crazy things and expressing very emotional things, which I couldn't do with comic books. 
Yeah. Well, and you mentioned the, 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 just the skill of being able to tell a story through an image. Um, do you feel that that storytelling component of your work as a comic artist carried over or oh, you know, yeah. enabled you in some way later as a fine artist? Oh, absolutely. I think one, one comic or one manga that I particularly fell in love with was Blame. And it was, um, so much of that had no words. Like the character is just moving through the entire book without saying anything to anybody. And the artist was able to capture such rich emotions through the character's expression that I thought, oh my gosh, this is what I want to do. And because of my background of being such a child of nature, you know, I thought I have, this is, this is my story. This is what I want to say without saying anything at all is like showing people that they, they are part of the world, you know, and that we blend technology with the natural world. So that's when Helmet Girls was a really big thing. I was doing a lot of uh, black and white uh, canvas work. And then I added a lot, like I started adding animals and then I started adding, like, then I just took away the, the industrial element and just had animals. And that was just, um, it was, it was, to me, it was very beautiful because I could express so many different ideas and people got it, you know, they were like, Oh yeah, I see what you're doing. (laughs) Well, and they also kind of inject their own ideas too, which I think is interesting. It makes it sort of a collaboration, um, between the viewer and the artist. Um, you, you kind of mentioned the evolution of your career, and I, I thought it was really interesting because, um, you know, at first, in the early days, as you got started, you dreamt of being a comic artist. Like, that was yeah. that was the, like, the top of the mountain, right? Um, and, yeah. you know, even while you were doing other things, I, I saw in several older interviews that you did, you're like, comics is my heart. Like, that's where my love yep. is. <laughs> And it seems like now gallery art seems to have a bigger presence in your practice. At least, you know, obviously my perspective is admittedly skewed towards gallery art. So maybe it's just what I see, but it feels like it has a little bit of larger presence than the comic art does. So help me understand that trajectory and how that evolution occurred over over the course of your career. So I remember specifically the turning point was when I did my first, when Random House approached me to do my first how to draw book and it was called Pop Manga. Um, just, yeah, it was just called pop manga. <laughs> and I was like, okay, this is everything that I've wanted to do. I want to teach other people how to draw anime and manga f- from a professionally, like a working, um, like graphic novelist perspective, because I saw a lot of the art that was out there, like the how to draw anime. And it was like, oof. like in my opinion, <laughs> it was a, it was an oof moment, you know? And so then I create, I spent, it takes a lot of time to do those kind of books. And I think, again, people don't know it takes like two years to do that. So that's when I had to put a pause on Tampopo and I had to take a pause from working with other com- like other comic book projects because I'm like, okay, this is, this really meant a lot to me. I meant a lot that I could in- like share my, my knowledge, my insider tips, like just, just help people. Um, who were like me, who went through school where the teachers were like, yeah, anime is an art, you know, like you'd find something else. And so I wanted to do that project because, because of that, I wanted to help others who maybe aren't as stubborn as me, (laughs) who aren't as obstinate and tell your teachers, I'll show you, you know? So I produced that book, took two years and it was amazing. And then after that, Random House was just so supportive and they're like, they were so excited. They're like, well, let's do another project. And I'm like, well, of course, you know, they've got, again, it's that 
it's a, it's like an evolution of your passions and you're just like, okay, yeah, now I can find some, another way to express myself. And that's what ended up happening. And so then I started to do, uh, I did a, oh, this is, I remember it was like, is it had a paint book and it was called pop painting. Cause again, there's another version of, of like, like how I went through college and I was so disappointed with like how they were teaching me. They were trying to teach me style instead of teaching me technique and then let my own style influence my art. So that book, and it took another two years to produce. <laughs> so as you're like, you, you, you go through your life and you're like, Oh wow, it's been four years and I haven't like I've done a comic in four years and then you're just like wow and at the time I'm doing paintings because they're in a sense like uh less time consuming than than a comic and there's less moving parts I think too you know like um so I I mean I remember doing those those how-to books and Try, and I'm scripting Tampopo and I've actually started thumbnailing it out. Plus I was doing all these galleries and, you know, the galleries, they're demanding, you know, they're just like, we want 20 pieces for a solo show. And you're like, what? Like, I, th- I think in one year I painted 70 pieces. And I'm wow. like, yeah. So I, again, I was so single. It hurt. <laughs> <laughs> like, my, my paintings were becoming sadder and sadder. <laughs> like, what's going on here? I'm like, I'm very lonely. <laughs> um, and then I ended up finding my, um, my husband and we, and you know, when, when you start to, when you get in a relationship, that's when you start to like, okay, I'm going to pull back from a few things and, and again, then there's the resurgence of coloring books that came was something that I absolutely loved as a child. And Random House is like, would you like to do? And I'm like, yep, let's do this. And and like, I think I've got six books, six coloring books under my belt now. So nice. And you mentioned that those how to books that you created. I was going to ask you about that as, as someone who's kind of found their own way to success, you know, mm-hmm. Like, what do you feel your responsibility is, if any, to provide guidance to other people that might be in a similar situation? Well, I think mm, responsibility is an interesting word because I don't think I feel responsible. I feel, I feel passionate. I feel like, I feel a sense of kinship with other artists. And I think for me, I just, I want to help as much as I can because I understand the struggle and I understand being an artist, there's a lot of self-doubt and there is a lot of like self-abuse too, where you're just like, I'm, I'm, I'm terrible. I'm, this is crap. You're never going to be successful. You're never going to do anything with your life. Like there is a lot of that and every artist has gone through that. So if I could provide like a life raft, if I could provide that in this sea of doubt, which we all have, I still have it. I'm like, my, please, believe me, I don't wake up and I'm like, I made it. I'm like, oh my God, I, st- I you know, there's so much to do. Um, so I feel, I feel like just kinship and I want to be that type of artist who won't hold back their secrets. I know that there's a lot of artists that are like that. They're like, no, I made it. You have to get your, find your own way versus myself. And that's okay. That's fine. I mean, you know, like Picasso, Picasso is Picasso because of, you know, he didn't tell anybody anything. It's fine. <laughs> um, and, um, but for me, I'm, I think I, I, I'm very social in that sense. And I, and I want to create that community. I want to be part of the community. So whenever anybody, um, DMs me or, um, writes a comment, like I'm always, I always respond or, you know, like I want to make sure that I, I am 
there for people. And, um, and I impart as much wisdom as I can in this changing landscape, you know, like what worked for me will definitely not work for people now because, you know, my space doesn't exist. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) like, (laughs) you know, and I, but if I can help in any way, I, I feel like I just, I just feel closer to the people who support me. Well, and that's a whole other can of worms, which is the evolution of social media took place literally throughout the course of your career. You've experienced the explosion of social media. So how has that participated in how you engage with your collectors or the readers when it comes to comic books? Um, What presence does social media have in your practice? It's it's huge. As as anybody knows, like social media, it's a make or break. And at the time... I've kind of feel, so I have a, I have like a two sided coin uh, on one side. It's amazing that I can connect with so many people and I can see like what's going on in the world and we can support each other. And like, I can like people in, in Japan can see what we're doing now. You know, that's a thing that didn't happen before. But then on the flip side, it, this social media has become an unstoppable algorithm, algorithmic monster right. that is depressing the hell out of me. <laughs> and uh, like before Instagram was bought out by Meta and before it even went to an algorithm, the chronological version of Instagram was such a pure and beautiful form of social media that should never have been tampered with because it changed the definition of social media. It changed why we posted. It changed how we posted. And now it's this popularity contest versus in the, in, in the initial stages, it was, here's what I'm doing. What do you like? Just here's what I'm doing. And people were just like, cool. Like I remember posting a video. I made this really cool iced coffee and I'm like, I posted it. And it got like 70,000 views, hundreds of comments. And I'm like, I'm like, whoa, this is crazy. I did, I posted a a video once. I got like 1.4 million views, you know, this was pre algorithm. This, and you know, and then, you know, when chronological went away, every, all of that, that, that innocence went away with it. Um, And so it's, it's, it's hard. It's struggling. Uh, No, sorry. It's, it's hard to find the, that beauty again. Um, I'm, and now of course you have to do reels, which it's like, okay, great. Now I have to be a videographer, like, okay, another hat, you know, that I wear. So it's, it's hard to keep up with it, but I do appreciate the connectivity. I appreciate that it is teaching me how to make videos. It's teaching me that, yes, I can make time lapses. I can do cool cuts and, you know, I can do voiceovers, which is really neat so that I can continue to impart that information. Um, yeah, I just... I just wish that it wouldn't be so I wish the 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 company like Meta would just lay off trying to siphon all of the fun and money out of us. <laughs> like, right. Yeah, cuz I mean it, it's it's even beyond like a popularity contest to the point where people are just becoming experts at how to game the algorithm. <laughs> what yes. tags what tags are popular <laughs> oh that I need God. to put on my posts? Like It's so hard. It's just like and again you're like, yes, this I remember Instagram before there were even hashtags. Like I I that's the thing that's very frustrating is like suddenly you have to be paying very close attention and the algorithm changes like monthly, you know, and then there's bots and then there's spam and then there's hackers and you're just like, Oh my God. But yeah, it's uh, Oh, 
oh my gosh, it is very difficult. Yeah, for everybody. It's not just me, it's like everybody. Um, Unless you're like a TikToker (laughs) who's like, you know, making TikToks about like like silly things. That's pretty fun. That is fun. I, I enjoy that. So it's sort of adjacent to social media and I guess sort of its own form of social media. Um, I know that you have a Patreon as well. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit yeah. about what your experience was with that platform. I've, I've talked to a few artists that have Patreons, but a lot of them don't. I don't think it's like a universal thing. And I, I think some mm-hmm. artists struggle with what is it that I make as a, an incentive? You know, like how do I yeah. engage in a way that makes sense on Patreon? So I guess how did you get into Patreon and what made you think that was like a good fit for your work and your practice? Well, I love, I love the idea of limited editions. I love the idea of giving people like, like being part of a club, you know, like I, I love that kind of stuff. And, um, my sister is funny cause like Adapia had come up with Patreon before Patreon was a thing. She was like, yeah, you should do this like club thing where people will give you monthly like amount of money. And then you give them these like cool packages. And I was like, that's ridiculous. Like, I don't have time for that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my poor sister. She had such great ideas. And it was like, she was so far ahead of the game. But then Patreon came along and it seemed like exactly what Adipi was saying, but in a, in a, in a way that I didn't have to create an entire platform, you know? And so I was, I was really neat. But then as you start to get, yeah, you have to do cost analysis of things. And I was realizing that I was actually making no money because the cost to produce such limited things and postage, which I am not Amazon. I have to pay for posts. I have to pay for shipping. And you're suddenly like, oh, no, I've made a mistake. (laughs) (laughs) So I I ended up changing my Patreon to um, non-physical rewards. And that definitely affected things because people want to physically get something, you know, if they're going to spend money. And I'm just like, okay. So again, that's one thing that you have to like keep up and you have to like think, okay, what do people want? But then at the same time, it's really what do I want to give people? You know, what do I, what makes, what makes me happy? And what do I think was going to be really cool here? So what I do with my Patreon is I, I give them a lot of behind the scenes, like things that I don't post on social media, you know, things that are like, Hey, look at it. Look at this sketch. Look at this drawing. Look at this, like, Oh, this is a product I might be doing. Like, what do you guys think? Like giving them a lot of options to interact with me and have opinions on what I do and what I produce. And then I do have like the one, the one thing I do have is a mystery box that I'm really excited about. So people get like really, really rare, like, like exclusive items in those boxes. So I, yeah, I really love that. Um, and then I, I also published on Patreon my fan fiction. Well, it's not, it was not a, there was a fan fiction and now there's like my sexy vampire novel series, which I'm on book three. So. <laughs> well, didn't you originally do like, I mean, a while back, do like vampire diary fan fiction? I, I read that. Oh, somewhere. yeah. <laughs> I did. Yes, of course I did. Have you watched the show? <laughs> I mean, hell, it, it took Damon and Elena so long to get together. I was like, it's like, screw you. I'm. <laughs> doing this on my own and the same thing so the other fan fiction i did did i thought it was really good though but it was like the walking dead i was like such a bethel fan i'm like beth and daryl yay and then they killed her and i was like you sons of bitches so mad so yeah there comes another fan fiction so um you can tell i'm a i'm a very excitable person and i really care about my characters so yeah when they get done dirty that's when i create a i start writing a fan fiction 
So overall, what's your experience been like on Patreon? Obviously, you you started out with one idea that didn't quite work out. You evolved it. Yeah. Overall, I mean, has it? Do you feel like the experience as a whole has been a positive one? I think so. I think it's been um, p- overall very positive. It has been frustrating. Um, and one thing is is difficult is to not take it personally when people drop off, because I was like, oh no, like why? <laughs> and then I and then I reach out to them and they're like, oh, you know, like I. I lost my job or like I'm moving or other people are just like, you know, they just, they just don't have the the money or the time. And even if it's like a dollar a month or $3 a month, that actually does add up if you're a type of person that supports a lot of Patreons, right? Like I, I recently did that too. Cause I was like, Oh my God, I support like 20 Patreons. I got to pull back. <laughs> <laughs> so, and yeah. And then I end up putting that money to charity cause I support like a lot of charities every month and another part of my, you know, empathetic, passionate side that my mother, you know, instilled in me. So yeah, but it's, yeah, I think it's very positive. I still enjoy it. Um, I will be revamping it by the end of the year, as soon as I'm done my solo show, because that is a, that is a beast. I am trying to like, (laughs) like ride to the end. (laughs) Nice. Awesome. So let's dive into the work itself. And and I know that, uh, you know, early on you talked about, you know, the black and white style that you had. Um, and one of the, the subjects or the, the subject matters that you've uh, dealt with over the course of your career is this helmet girls concept. That's kind of yeah. been a core motif that you've worked around for a long time. So I guess what originally got you into that, uh, that idea and what got you excited about just helmets in their various forms? <laughs> well, I think for me, so I... This is this is what happened. I was growing up in Lumbee, you know, surrounded by nature. There's no industry whatsoever. You know, it's it's like farmland. There's bears in like the cornfields I would watch. And then I moved to the city where there's like barely no Vancouver is very is very green. But to me. It was an industrial wasteland. I was like, oh my God, like why? There's skyscrapers, there's all this stuff. And and then living in North Van, I would take the bus and, and there was this crazy factory, like on the ocean, on, on the water side. And I would we drive by like every day going to college. And I there's these huge mechanisms and these pipes and all this stuff. And it blew me away that a, a person could come up with all of that. Like it's still to this day, I don't know how an engine works, like blows my mind. And, uh, and so then I guess the first helmet girl really was myself in this world, in this new world. And I didn't, it didn't realize that until like just recently too, of course, cause like I, I was not self-aware at the time. I was just like, cool, let's do this. And, um, so then, yeah, putting these massive machines and gadgets and gears on, on like a, a, a young girl seemed impossible, but it, it, it was like, it was this cool balance where I was like, it doesn't make sense, but it works, which is what I think of technology. I'm like, I still, I, I don't get it, but it works. Were the helmets meant to be, or maybe eventually gained meaning um, to be symbolic in some way? Did they have some kind of a core meaning to them or maybe over mm-hmm. time have they developed a meaning? They did. Yeah, absolutely. So in the beginning, it was very much like just put a bunch of metal on their heads and yeah, cool. And then, but then I started to modify them. And one of my favorite ones is called the life giver. And it has a helmet, a giant, giant helmet and inside are butterflies. And I, I use the symbol of butterflies as like 
ideas and, and that she's generating this life. Like every idea we have is a new life that we're giving birth to. And so that's when I started to add more elements, like more animals started to appear with the, with the helmets and butterflies are a huge thing. Uh, and yeah, so then, then they did start to be, have a meaning to them and it started to become, um, something that I was very interested to explore. And, and do you feel that that evolution that took place where you started introducing new elements, you started adding animals, uh, a lot of more vibrant colors, was that sort of an organic thing that just took place over time or was it a conscious effort that, oh man, I, I really want to go in a new direction? No, at the time it was not, it was, it was not conscious. I was like, I just started to come up with more ideas that introduced the animals. I think the only conscious time I, I changed my art style and was when I did the rainbow children show at, uh, at, in, in Brooklyn, where I decided to divert from my paintings of girls and, and animals and just start doing like, more uh, bizarre, like ra- melting rainbows and type of type stuff that was very much more emotional versus like natural, you know. And so was that the point where sort of the the drippy aesthetic started yeah. entering into your work where, where people were melting or the colors, the vibrant colors started to either melt or, um, you know, the I, girls I, were melting too. Melt- yeah, yeah. <laughs> was that the introduction of that motif? It, yes, it was. Um, and that really came around when the galleries were a bit suffocating to me, where they were asked, demand, demanding too much. And then at one point, a gallery owner was like, you know what you haven't painted? A koala. They're really cute and popular. That would totally sell. And I was like, oh, I see. So the art is only about the sale. And it, to them, it wasn't about the significance, right? And I get it as a gallery owner. You're like, yeah, I gotta, I gotta make fat, you know, I gotta make fat stacks, like obviously. (laughs) (laughs) But for me as an artist, I was like, oh, damn, I don't, my art doesn't mean anything to them. So when Tara McPherson asked me to be part of uh, like a a show in Brooklyn at her gallery, the candy machine, or the cotton candy machine, sorry. Then I was like, okay. So I asked her, do you uh, like, what do you, what do you want me to paint? And she's like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, you know, like, is there, you know, anything in particular? She's like, no, just paint whatever you want. And at the time I just kept picturing these melting rainbows, like these just girls with their eyes were closed. Like they were just floating images. And I'm like, is if it's okay, can I just paint something you've never seen before? She's like, yeah, just be creative, just be yourself. And so that's when I, I, I did that. I started painting, I did an entire show like that. And it was so cathartic. I was like, Oh my God. Wow. I felt so good. And I thought I was terrified though. I'll be honest. I was so scared that people wouldn't like it because there were no, like some of them didn't even have any animals or any eyes. It was just like, Oh my God, I hope people don't like crucify me. And I thought, I thought to myself and I told my husband, I'm like, if this fails, I'm, I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. I'm okay to just be a comic book artist. I'm fine with that. And he's like, yeah, you don't worry. It'll be fine. And then that became incredibly popular and people were just like so excited to see something like that. And I was very, I was very moved. I felt reinvigorated. I, I got my, my inspiration back. Amazing. I wonder if that like Tara's approach to that, that engagement just has to do with the fact that she herself is an artist. It's it's a gallery run mm-hmm. by an artist rather than yeah. so so she knows that experience and 
kind of approaches it in that way. It's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. We talked a little bit about the um, you know the ability to tell a story through your work. Do you consider yourself a storyteller when it comes to your gallery work? Like, are you trying to tell the story through the symbols that you use? That's you know, no one's ever asked me that. Uh, but I think so. I think if you're going to put it in that term, uh, then yes, I am. Yeah, I guess so. Especially um, as I've started to theme my solo shows, like this one that I have coming up in August, I called it, it's called Nurtured by Nature. And I'm specifically um, telling us like an overarching story um, that that blends animals with people in a, in a very... Um, pointed way you know it's like I'm trying to show like for example I'm painting this one image with a bunch of scrolls from all over the world you know and a lot of these animals people have never seen them before like you just have to do yourself a favor and google dwarf Japanese flying squirrel it is I mean it is an anime it is a Pokemon it's a Pokemon (laughs) and I'm like how is this thing real it's and I'm I'm struggling to make it as cute as the picture it's like stupid cute I want to punch it so fun it's so cute um, and so I want to show people that they can live without technology and they can just look to nature to be inspired and to like, I really do feel like we need to step away from our screens because if we don't, what we're going to end up doing is missing out on what is around us. And if you don't try to explore the world around you, um, it's going to be gone. Like, you know, with the way that the environment is going and, and climate change and all this, like a lot of these animals are going to be gone. And one piece, one piece in particular is, uh, it has all endangered species that are on the brink of extinction. And it's a sad thing to, to Google it, you know, animals on, right. you know, about to go extinct. And you're like, Oh my God, that list is long. So <laughs> I know it's very sad. And I like, it made me cry. <laughs> um, so my, my show is meant to just really, open people up to uh, the natural world and like just become a part of it again. And do the, do the animals that you often include, do they symbolize certain things within the work? Like in, in, in a recurring way where, Hey, a cat usually means this or a mm. bee usually means this. Do they, do they have, is it sort of a visual language that you have with the animals? Yeah, absolutely. And if I, if I remember painting like a, a, a love bird, it's 100% about true love mates for life, you know, and, uh, the other like butterflies for me are about, um, adve- adventure traveling. It's also about community because, uh, butterflies, um, they, they are especially monarchs, which again are endangered. They, <laughs> they, they create these communities. They actually pollinate the entire world. Yes. They, every, every animal does have a symbol for me. And previous to this show, I would inject that type of storytelling where I would be like, okay, I'm going to use specifically this animal, like, or an octopus means intelligence or something. Um, this show doesn't do that. This show is specifically only about the different types of animals. And it is, it's, it's not in that sense. It's not a visual puzzle anymore. It's just about like, this is what's out there. Look, like, look at what we have and how we could, you know, we could lose it. So. Yeah, yeah. So how, how do you usually arrive at your ideas for, for new works or, or new bodies of work? Do you do you have like a daily sketchbook routine? Do you have like brainstorming activities that you do? I I used to have a lot of sketchbooks and now I just don't anymore. I think my sketchbook. Well, I do. No, that's not fair. I do have I do have a sketchbook where I like jot down tons of ideas 
And I'll just throw down any idea that I have. And as I start to, as I do that, I'm just purging. I'm purging all of these, these ideas and these visual concepts. And then when I start to look at them, I'm like, okay, this makes sense if I do this. And then I start to evolve it, you know, and I start to like, um, make it, uh, make it into it like a theme with this particular solo show. And the one I did, uh, that was called uh, sky that one I was, so sky happened in 2020 and that one, I was very specific <laughs> where I was, uh, fighting or I was clapping back against, uh, like racism and marginalization because it it was so hard to live. Like we all lived through it. We all lived through like the resurgence of Nazis, which was like, what the like right. hasn't haven't we gone through this? Can't does don't we know that it just if you're a Nazi you're a bad person? Yeah. You know, like come on, you know that still hasn't completely oh, died back. My down. God, it's yes, crazy. And I think about pop culture because I just live in, a, in my own movie. But I'm just like, if Indiana Jones doesn't like Nazis, <laughs> right. like he's yeah, like I <laughs> just imagine if Indiana Jones met you and you're like, I'm a Nazi, he'd punch you in the face. Right, so, punch a Nazi. <laughs> yeah, just think of your life in terms of like, if I met Indiana Jones, would he punch me in the face? If he says, if you say yes, yeah, you're a Nazi. Maybe bad. you're a bad person. Maybe but. you're a bad person. <laughs> um, so that show, I wanted to show the diversity of humanity. So I, I painted a girl with like vitiligo. I painted girls that were blind, um, deaf, mute. I painted girls that were, uh, I painted boys too. Not to say I, I only paint girls exclusively, but I painted like a gay couple. I painted an interracial couple. I painted like, it was just so my way of bringing humanity back to that place of beauty where we're not looking at ourselves as you're different than me. And, and I don't like it. It's like, actually it's more beautiful when we are different, right. you know, it's the human rainbow. So that, um, and that really, it took me a while to come up with that because I was really, um, emotionally exhausted. I was really depressed. I didn't know what to do because you, you feel, sometimes you feel so, um, helpless or like, like you see these tragedies in the world and you're like, I can't stop it. Like, how do I stop it? And so then I just realized I'm like, Oh my God, I can use my art. I can actually just like do, do my clap back in this way and do it in a non aggressive way to do it in actually positive and beautiful way, which is lacking in the world. You know, I think people can be very down and it obviously when you, when you turn on the news, it's never like, Hey, we discovered a unicorn. It's terrible. It's always, no, it's always terrible. It's like, Oh, the last rhino died. Perfect. You know, <laughs> like shit. So yeah. So now I've really made it very, very specifically about positivity. Um, and that, yeah, like it, that, that's just how I want to be as a person. I want to be, I want my art to help other people in that way. And so you have these ideas for shows that you want to move forward with. Do you usually like write them down in words instead of like sketching them out? Just like what the concept is? I do. Yeah, absolutely. It's like it's like a nice um, mix of, of words and then mm. like little tiny scribbles. Okay. And and at what point in the uh, con- you know, kind of, kind of conception phase do does like colors actually start playing into things? Because ever since you added colors to your work, they've seemed to have become a central part of your practice. Do that, does that kind of come in in the early stages of the concept or does it come later as you're painting it? I think it's a mix. I think there's a time, sometimes I'll come up with a, a an idea and I'm just like, oh, 
what the heck is that going to look like in color? I'm like, oh, Jesus. Um, but then other times where I paint the, the, the main characters or whatever, the background, it's all grayscale. And then I add in the pop of color, then that's very intentional. And I can see that before I actually put it to, put it to canvas. There are definitely sometimes like I started this painting of the squirrels, like the girl with the squirrels. And I'm like, oh, what's her hair going to look like? I'm like, oh God, what's the background going to look like? Because suddenly it was just like, I just have all these animals that have their own unique coloring. So I'm not influencing the colors of the animals. But then I have to be like, I have to think like, okay, how do I make this all blend together and look a specific way? So, um, but there was another time I did this, this series called The Spectrum Girls. And as an artist, I wanted to explore what color means to people, you know, because some of my, some of my work was black and white with just color. And then I'm like, okay, so people are reacting to it that way. What if I painted really creepy stuff, but in pink, you know, are the people going to notice? And they didn't like, so this girl, Rosea, she's got a flamingo, but then she also has a cricket. She's got a, like a praying mantis. She's got a moth, like, you know, all these creepy things. And they're just like, this is so pretty. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> yeah, I get, you know, like. So it's like it, a psychological experiment to see ah, what people oh, yeah. respond to. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. That's amazing. So like, as you want to you know, move forward with one of these concepts and starting to crystallize in your head, how do you develop the composition? Do you typically do out like a really refined ink drawing before you jump into painting or do you just jump right into the painting? I just jump right in. Um, I used to do that where I would put a lot of time and effort into the sketch. And then what would inevitably happen is that the sketch would not or the painting would not look like the sketch. And then I get married to what I've drawn and it's not, you know, actualizing on the canvas and I'm like getting frustrated and frustrated. So I think now the, the less detail I put in the sketch, the, the more, uh, energy and, and I can just let the painting breathe, you know, and just like let it develop on its own. And are you ever surprised by the direction a painting goes? Like, yeah. does it deviate <laughs> very far from the original idea? Oh God, Yes. Oh, it's so frustrating sometimes <laughs> when you're like, like, I want it to look like this. And then you're like, oh, what's happening? Like, what, ha you know, I like, I, it happens all the time. I'm like, this girl doesn't look anything like her expression is different. Like, and I think that happens because I might be going through something on my own and I don't know. And my subconscious is just putting it out there, you know, like sometimes I want to do a very happy girl and then she's like a little morose. I'm like, this is what's happening. Like, did I just watch like Breaking Bad again? And then that's what's, ha you know, it's coming through. So yeah, yeah, it's, uh, and I, I've learned just to let the paintings, uh, evolve on their own. They, they're, to me, they are alive and I don't, I don't, uh, edit them anymore you know nice nice and as far as mediums you, you use um in the early days of your painting career i believe you used acrylic but now you've obviously shifted to oil what motivated that change of uh, medium so when i was in college i learned the basics i learned how to use traditional oils acrylics you know gouache and i didn't like using the oils because they were very um uh, toxic you know they were just really very smelly and i again lived in a I, at the time, I lived in an apartment 
well, one bedroom apartment with another girl and I was living in the living room. This is how poor I was. Like I just like, again, I struggled. We struggle, you know, like sure. a starving artist. It was so true. So I couldn't use, I couldn't use, I couldn't use oils because it would just uh, ruin my friendship. Uh, so then I, at the time I was living in this one bedroom apartment with uh, Claudia, I worked for Opus Art Supplies. Because I realized that, you know what, I'm, the, the not getting paid thing is really, I, it's not sustainable. <laughs> I had $13 in my bank account. I'm like, oh my God. So I ended up working for this art supply company and they were, they taught me how to use, um, water soluble oils. Um, and that was something I'd never heard of. And a lot of people to this day still don't know what a water soluble oil is. And it is an oil paint that has a, um, a chemical added to it so that it uh, blends it, it allows it to blend with water, which then makes it non-toxic, which, I mean, don't eat it. It's not like you should eat it or anything, <laughs> but it's, it's like a more environmentally friendly alternative, but you still, so you still get those beautiful oil, like, um, like the blendability, you get like those intense colors and you could do impastos, you could do washes. It's amazing. And so I, I started to use this product while I was at Opus and I fell in love with it and it revolutionized how I painted. And then at the time as well, they had wood canvases and I'm like, what's that? Well, let, let's try that too. And so I tried all these different things and I'm like, wow, this is just, and I ended up finding my bliss, which was oil, like these duo oils uh, from Holbein on wood. And I'm like, this is it. This, I, I, I'm so happy doing this. So, so how fortuitous was it that you were working at an art supply store that lets you like explore yeah. these different things? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Right. I, you know, I, I'll, I remember this particular time because I had applied to Starbucks because I also I love coffee and I'm like oh I could work at Starbucks in Gastown which in Vancouver is such a cool area and I remember having an interview with the what the manager and she's like you know she's like what do you want to do with your life I'm like I'm an artist and and I told her that I also applied for Opus and she's like you know what I I want to hire you but I'm not because you need to live in a world where like of your your like you know, your, your chosen profession. She's like, you could be, she's like, yeah, you, you were a barista before you'll be like, you I'm sure you'll be a great barista, but if you really want to be an artist, you should surround yourself with art supplies. And That's I was amazing. so thankful to this manager and she was just like, yeah. So she's like, if you don't get hired there, obviously I'll hire you though. So I was like, okay, good. But, <laughs> um, I had a backup. I had a backup, but yeah. So, so I thanks, ended up working. Starbucks yeah. manager. <laughs> right. Oh my God. Thank you so much. Yeah. Who knows what would have happened? I'd probably still be working in acrylics. Are there other mediums that you'd like to explore someday? I've been, I've been given a lot of supplies from people. Um, I think my time of experimentation is a little over. I think for me, the, the most I've experimented with is like fluid acrylics and then the iridescent, which are so pretty. Oh my God. I love them. <laughs> but I think, yeah, I think I'm really happy with the water soluble oils. And then I do add in the elements of like liquid acrylics, fluid acrylics, and then these iridescents. I think that's pretty cool. And yeah, I mean, if they come up with another insane product then yeah i mean why not i mean i can't say no so shifting gears a little bit before we dive into your your new show a little bit more um i want to talk to you a bit about your experience boothing at conventions we talked to a little bit about you know we, before we started recording just how much you used to do versus how you do now yeah. so it, it seems like just outside looking in that you do these a lot or over the course of your career <laughs> yeah. you've done them a lot um how do you feel about i guess 
boothing at a convention in that way, participating in conventions? Is it something you really thrive or is it like exhausting? Oh my God, it's so tiring. <laughs> it's a little bit of both. So here's the, I, I've, I've been talking to people at shows and I'm like, we should do a, like a reality show behind the scenes, behind the booth, you know? And it shows and the, the struggle to set up a booth and like the, the hellscape that that is. Like, I'm not kidding. Um, because yes, once it's all set up, it's freaking awesome. It's so great. But like, I've literally gone to a convention, Emerald City Comic Con. Yeah, I'm going to blast them out on this because it was terrible. <laughs> it was like last year. No, so not the last year I showed up three days before the show about like, I'm ready to set up. And they're just like, uh, we can't find your booth. Oh, sorry. Yeah, we sold your booth wow. to someone else. I'm like, what? What do you mean? They're, I'm like, but you had my payment. They're like, yeah, but we just didn't take it. I'm like, cool cool so what does that mean and yeah it was this like insane like rush to get them to give me a booth (laughs) so they yeah it was crazy um the the did the guy i have to give him props so he did get me this amazing 10 by 20 and i only paid for 10 by 10 so i'm like thank you and it was amazing it was great but like that's the kind of stuff that happens where you show up people have stolen your tables you're, you're, you're like facing a toilet. You just like, don't know what's happening. Like the power went out, the air con goes out or like, yeah, this, it's a constant never ending juggle just to get the logistics to work. Sometimes my boxes are just don't show up. Like, or they, I had one time at the, the five points festival in Brooklyn where my boxes showed up, but they were opened and half of the stuff was gone. Oh man. Yeah. And then I set up and then, um, I would go back the next, the next morning and there was an uh, air conditioner leak and it leaked all <laughs> over my stuff. No. And I'm just like, oh my God. <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> it's like nightmare fuel. How much planning usually goes into like, um, one of these events? Like how much advanced planning huge do you have amount. to do? Yeah. So a lot, especially, um, because now I've, Paired it down to like just the bigger shows. So play like New York Comic Con, San Diego, which by the way, New York still hasn't confirmed me. I'm, I'm so oh. excited about that. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and then, yeah, but it takes, so San Diego is like a wedding. There's a lot to do. You have to like make sure everything is perfect. So I start planning San Diego at least nine months in advance. And, um, yeah. And that's and like a couple months away, right? That's coming up. It sure is. Yeah. So I'm, 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 I've, I've got, I've finally ordered all of my stuff and, but I've, yeah, you've got to do a lot of things for San Diego and they've got so many hoops you got to jump through, like apply for height variants, like, like how many tables, how many badges and like, yeah, it's, it's a whole thing. And then when you get there, then the hellscape begins. So, um. so I mean, having done this for, for a number of years now, have you seen the the convention scene evolve in certain ways over oh, yeah. the years? It's interesting. So when I did my first one in 1998, uh, I remember specifically being like the one of the only women at San Diego Comic-Con. And this one guy was like, how did you hear about it? I'm like, well, there's this thing called the internet. And I went, I searched it. Like it was, uh, he didn't mean to be condescending, but he was just like, why is like, how was there a girl here? Because like at the time, girls comics weren't meant for girls and that's you know and like there was this this thing where it's like it's just for just for guys and i've always been a tomboy you know like i was a massive tomboy in high school so i'm like i didn't didn't matter to me you know like i'm like i like it i like knives and i like tractors and i like comic <laughs> books but i also like pink you know so uh yeah and and then 
it's it's very different because at the time it was very comic book centered, you know, and now there is this insane like media frenzy around it where like New York Comic Con had a Geico booth. Like, really? I wanna I want I wanna buy insurance at a Comic Con? Like and there and I, there was a lineup because they were giving away free swag. So I'm like, really people? So I don't know. Wow. Um you know, I've I've seen it change from the the purest standpoint where it was like comics and variant covers and you know the the like Mike Mignola was at his booth and stuff like you know there wasn't this it was just it was a little more toned down and but now it's incredible because you have people of all walks of life. You have like any age person is there. You know, you have people of all genders, of, of all like walks of life, like seriously. And then you see them dress up and they're just like, they're tapping into their inner nerd, which I love because nice. I'm a total, total nerd. And to see people doing that, it's just like, they're so happy. There's this like positive energy. There's just this like, I don't know. When you go to a Comic-Con and you, you just get excited, people are just like, they're thriving. And I love that. I really do. I love it. Even if there's a Geico booth, you're just like, ugh. But and, like, and, a, and a dripping water uh, from oh my the, God, the yeah. air conditioner. <laughs> I tell <laughs> so you. let's talk about your next show. You mentioned it earlier. I think you said it was called uh, Nurtured by Nature. Or is that? Yep. Okay. And, and it's opening in uh, August, late August, August uh, 26th at Corey Helford. So what can you tell me about this new body of work? So this one, um, it's going to be my like my le- my love letter to Mother Nature. It's it's really taking all of like as many animals and as many different um, species that that I can, and uh, r- really embracing them, really making people see that there is so much life, and we need to really preserve it. We really need to be careful. I'm very worried about. The fact that people were getting a bit distracted from things that are important, you know, I think we're, we're forgetting that this is the only planet that sustains life that we have access to. And every patch of grass that you put cement over is a patch that's never going to come back, right? Like, unless there's an apocalypse and everything grows back over, obviously. But I, I really want this particular show to, um, marry the 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 characters like humans uh with those those animals and to show certain species that nobody's ever seen like there's a purple squirrel i did not know that it's in it's from india it's a giant purple squirrel (laughs) and then right so um i'm trying to use color as well to uh to make to make a very positive happy situations I want it to be very fanciful as well because it's it's fun like it's beautiful like there's just certain things that are um I I always say this but like nature is the most incredible artist on the planet you know there are there are creatures out there that you can't imagine there is literally a a green dove like a green (laughs) a green dove what (laughs) so I'm hoping to bring that whimsy and really showcase those extraordinary creatures that um, deserve our attention. They deserve to be seen by us and for us to res- to respect them and for us to be like, okay, no, we should stop search. I'm not, I'm not saying stop searching the galaxies, but look at what we have and look at what we could lose. And also 
you should be nurtured by it. Like, like actually the title it's, you should take from nature what it's giving you, which is happiness. It's joy. It's beauty. It's like peace, you know, um, look at what we have and, and remember, remind yourselves that you're part of this natural world, you know, like, like a computer isn't part of the natural world and use it as a tool, but then take like, go to the beach or go on a forest walk or just look at a tree and just put your phone down, you know? Right. And so was this theme something that you developed up front and then started working within that that idea? Or did you just start working and then identify that theme that kind of naturally came? It it was, um, the theme came up first. Uh, where I live, it that's actually the tagline of the city. It's called Nunu Bay, Nurtured by Nature. And I drive by it every day, you know, or not every day, but like when I drive by it, I always look at it and I look at it and I feel this sense of peace living out here. And like, I have a yard, I actually have a yard and I, and I feel so different and I get it. And it was like this one day I was driving by and I'm like, oh my God, I totally, I get it now. I am being nurtured by nature. What? And so I want to kind of bring that sense to other people, you know, and especially if we live in cities, like, believe me, I lived in a concrete tower for 12 years in uh, an 800 square foot apartment that was like two levels. And my kitchen table was my, my studio, you know, like for 12 years I did that. So I, I get it. I, I get it. And now that I, I don't live in that concrete jungle, I feel so at, more at peace and I'm hoping to, to impart that kind of feeling and sense to other people now. Awesome. And do you know how many pieces they're going to be? I'd like there to be 20, (laughs) 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 but, um, I'm, I'm, I'm going, I'm aiming for at least 15, uh, paintings and 15 drawings. Plus I'm doing statues. So yeah, that's going to be my, um, uh, installation piece. So my installation piece is going to be, uh, statues of animals that, um, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about that. Are you working with somebody to realize the designs or are you sculpting them yourself? <laughs> oh, <laughs> so I've found some amazing um, prefabricated animals and then I'm going to modify them. And yeah, because unfortunately I'm not that I'm not a sculptor. I I wish I could be, but um, I'm too busy making reels. No. <laughs> right. right. Or, yeah, figuring out the right uh, hashtag. The algorithm. The yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, no, but I, I am excited. My husband's helping me with that too. So I, I'm, I'm just, it's going to be really neat to see that a three-dimensional animal in this space, um, where people can like look around and just, um, see it for the beauty that I, that I see, you know? Awesome. Are you planning to attend the opening? I am. Yes. And actually this is the first time ever my entire like family is coming. So my mom, nice. my dad, my, awesome. my, uh, my younger sister, my older sister. Yeah. They're, they're coming. And my parents have never been to one of my art. Well, no, that's not fair. My father came to one of my art shows in Rome, but they haven't been to any of my art shows in North America. So I'm very excited to have them there. So that's going to be an extra level of kind of anxiety. Oh God. Yeah. I better, I better bring it. <laughs> Well, no, just, you know, showing the family around, you know, that's yeah. a whole other layer on top of it. Is there anything else that you'd want to put on people's radars, events, print releases that you have coming up? Yeah, I mean, I've got a few releases coming up. So I always do this uh, June release. I'm This time I'm calling it The Birds and the Bees. And I've got this amazing holographic print that's based on my first painting ever of Snow White that I've done. 
and it's I'm very excited about it. And so I've got this release in June, June 23rd. There's going to be original art. There's going to be some really cool pieces and prints. Uh, then, of course, I do have my coloring books that are coming out. So my best of pop manga coloring book, the I believe the sixth in the series is coming out in July. So you can actually pre-order it now on my website and then you get all these like really cool um, exclusives you can only get from me and not Amazon. Please support direct. Right, right. <laughs> so, so tell people where they can find you online so they can stay up with all the latest. Yeah, absolutely. So I do have like an Etsy shop. I have my my main website is CamilaDerico.com and that's where you can shop online and you can find my stuff too. So, um, and then also of course, you know, social media, I'm, I am there. I am, I'm online. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So last question, and this is something yeah. that I like to ask everybody. Uh, who is one artist that you'd like to see me have on the show? <gasps> well, you got to interview James Jean. I mean, he's like the, he's like my, oh, he's so amazing. Like he's so talented that you almost hate him because he, he's so good. <laughs> Incredible. Um, yeah. Oh, he's incredible. Uh, but if you could, so if you're going to do anybody though, I would say one of my favorite Japanese artists is Range Murata, I think, or, oh my, yeah, I would say, or Terada Katsuya. He's so incredible. He's such a down to earth guy, like, or Mark Ryden. Or Arjun Kawasaki. Yeah, I'm a Libra. <laughs> you can tell. I can't. I just can't just pick one. So yeah, I would say all of those people. <laughs> awesome. So Camila, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me today. This has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. No, thank you for your time. This is really really fun. Thanks. All right. Awesome. So we'll cut there. What do you think? Oh my god, that was so great. You guys have a lot of questions that I haven't been asked. So that's it for this episode of Art Affairs. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Camila. It was really interesting to talk with her about how her career has evolved over the years. When I research my guests in preparation for these talks, I generally always approach the research chronologically. It helps me to really get a sense of the journey that they've taken and the way that their practice has evolved. And in the very early stages of researching Camila, it was super clear that comics were her everything. She lived and breathed comics, and that had always been like the mountaintop she aspired to. And then having that evolve later to include painting, and then ultimately painting superseded comics as being the biggest portion of her practice and the core of her you know, yearly creative pursuits. It's always interesting to observe how people's passions and interests evolve over the years. You know how that one thing that you felt so strongly about eventually becomes secondary to another love that's become more prominent. And it was super interesting that the catalyst for this shift in her art practice occurred in conjunction with her working on a how-to book about the very practice that it eventually pushed her away from. Almost like as part of writing that book, it made her realize that she's come to love this other thing even more. That's so interesting. Her new solo show sounds like it's going to be awesome. I love the heightened focus on nature and how it's promoting a respect and appreciation for the natural world and our place in it. The show is going to be titled Nurtured by Nature, opening on August 6th at Corey Helford Gallery in L.A. And as she said, not only is she going to be in attendance, but it'll be the first time that her family's had an opportunity to experience an opening with her. So be sure to follow Camila's and the gallery's Instagram to learn more about the show as it gets closer. 
So thanks again to Camila for joining me today, and thank you for checking out the show. I'm truly grateful for your support. And just a reminder, one big way to help out if you're really enjoying the show would be to check out the show's Patreon. You can find all the details on patreon.com slash artifairs. And as always, you can contact me through my website at artifairspodcast.com or on Instagram at artifairspodcast. So until next time, be good to yourself and be good to each other. Thank you.